Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. One year, when I was growing up as a kid, I only wanted one thing for Christmas. I told my parents, I said, I don't want anything else. There is only one item on my Christmas list this year. All I want is an electric scooter. And this was no ordinary electric scooter, okay? It had a seat and a horn and a headlight. It was red, white, and blue with shining stars going down the side of it. (laughs) And at full throttle, it topped out at a whopping 15 miles per hour. (laughs) That's what I wanted more than anything. But you see, my parents, they had this thing. I don't know if you know. It's it's called a budget. Um, And with five kids, we did not get everything that we wanted. And I'm grateful for that looking back now. But as a kid, that was not very exciting. (laughs) I learned to not get my hopes up. So fast forward that year to Christmas Day. Christmas morning came, and I'm running to the living room. I'm so excited to open up all my gifts, and guess what? There was no scooter. Yeah, and I try not to be upset because I got some other cool stuff, you know, and you're supposed to be grateful. But on the inside, I was a little bummed. I was looking around. My mom said, Micah, are you, are you missing something? I said, no, no, this is great. Thank, thanks, Mom. Thanks. She said, hmm, maybe you should look around the house a little bit more. And I thought, could it be? Could it possibly be? So I walk around, I'm looking around the living room, and finally I go into the kitchen, and there it was, the glory of the Lord, descending on the electric scooter. And I just said, thank you, thank you. I jumped on, I just took off right out the front door, through the yard, jumped the ditch, barely missed the mailbox, and I was gone. I was living the dream until about 10 minutes later when the battery needed to be recharged. But that is one of my favorite Christmas memories growing up because it was unexpected. Like, I did not see that coming. It was a big surprise, and my excitement was better because of the surprise. That's the lens we've been viewing the Christmas story through this Advent season. Our series is titled, No, I Had Seen. We've been looking at the unexpected, the unusual, the surprising way that God chose to send his son Jesus into the world to save his people. And we've been doing that by walking through Luke's account of the birth of Christ. And Luke began with about the most unexpected way you could imagine. An angel shows up after 400 years of silence from God to surprise two lowly individuals and tell them they're having a baby. The unexpected nature of the story was amplified by the fact that one of those couples was past childbearing age, and the second baby would come to a girl who was a virgin. And all this pointed to an even bigger surprise. These were not just two miracle babies, but these were baby boys who the nation of Israel had long been waiting for, two children who had been divinely ordained to bring in the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, the first baby, his role was to prepare people's hearts and make way for the second baby. We know the second baby, his name was Jesus. He was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And last week we saw how these mothers reacted. Saw Elizabeth being filled with the Holy Spirit and praising God for her younger relative, Mary. We saw the baby in Elizabeth's womb leap for joy upon first meeting his cousin, Jesus. And then we saw Mary respond with this incredible song of praise. Mary's saying about who God is and what he's done. And she used all these great Old Testament scripture because she understood that God was doing and fulfilling his plan. 
And one of the interesting things that Luke does in these first few chapters of his gospel is to show this parallel between John the Baptist and Jesus. Have you noticed that? John's birth is announced, then Jesus' birth is announced. Zechariah and Elizabeth respond, then Mary responds. And just as we saw last week with Mary's song, we've got another song today. It's from someone less famous than Mary, but this song is just as important for this story. This song is from Zechariah, John the Baptist's father. And Zechariah doesn't get a lot of press this time of year. No one sings, Zechariah, did you know? He doesn't appear in many church plays or nativity scenes, but he's a really big part of Luke's account. You'll remember Zechariah kind of started out on the wrong foot. When the angel showed up to tell him he was having, he and his wife were going to have a baby, he didn't believe it. And so he was struck mute, which in this time period meant not only could he not talk, but he also was deaf. He couldn't hear. And that's the state he lived in for nine months until one day God opened his mouth again. Because he had something very important to say. And that's where we pick up today. Look with me at Luke chapter 1. Let's start in verses 57 through 60. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth. And she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered no. He shall be called John. So Elizabeth finally has the baby that's been promised to her and Zechariah in the temple, and everyone's all excited for him. And it was customary at this time for Jewish people to take new baby boys to the temple for the eighth day after their birth to be circumcised. And so they go and do that in obedience to the law, and everyone wants to know the baby's name. <laughs> it's funny how our baby names have always been like a really big deal. People spend a lot of time today figuring out what to call their child, you know, so they can get everything monogrammed and and Instagram hashtag just right. But a baby's name was even more important in the Bible times. Names had meaning. They were often family names passed down, so there was a lot of significance there. And the people assumed that this baby would be named after his dad, a good family name. But Elizabeth says, no, 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 he's going to be called John. Remember, that was a part of the angel's command to Zechariah. He said, you shall call his name John. So the people are a little confused. And watch what happens next. Look at verses 61 to 66. And they said to her, to Elizabeth, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The people are confused. They turn to Zechariah and say, Hey, what do you want to call him? Well, he's still deaf and mute. (laughs) So he has to write it out on a tablet. He says, The baby's name is John. And as soon as he completes this act of obedience, his tongue is loosed. He's able to speak again. And what does he say? After nine months of silence, he blesses God. He begins to praise the Lord and share some of the things he's learned. See, it's clear that Zechariah did not let this season of difficulty go to waste. Can you imagine this? I was trying to think about this this week. How would it be being unable to hear, unable to speak for nine straight months? No music, no talking, nothing, just silence. 
Some of you introverts are thinking, wow, that's kind of nice. <laughs> but for most of us, that would be really difficult. And yet, based on Zechariah's response, he used that season of quiet to really get alone with God. It seems that he must have spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, a lot of time praying and meditating on the Word, because it's about to become very clear that he learned some incredible things through his time of trial. I've learned the same thing is true of us today. It's often in the most difficult, unexpected seasons when you learn and grow the most in life. God does his best work in the midst of our struggles. He loves to work in our seasons of quiet and waiting. So I would not wish for a season of nine months of silence and no talking. It would be kind of hard with my job. But I do wonder if we ever slow down enough to really see what God is doing. To really spend time with God in the midst of our chaos. There's something to seasons of waiting and, and silence and intense focus on God's word where we, we learn things that we might not learn otherwise. And that's what happened to Zechariah. Let's see now what he learned in his nine-month season of quiet. Look at verses 67 through 75, the first part of his song. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Just like Mary's song, the Magnificat, Zechariah's song too has a famous Latin title. It's called Benedictus. Based on that first word in Latin, also the first word in English, it's the word blessed or blessed. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. This is a song of praise to God. And what does Zechariah praise God for? He's not just praising him because he got a son. In fact, this first part of his song isn't about his son John at all. It's about the Messiah. It's about what God's doing in the world. He says, blessed be the God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is a big deal. because Let's remember the context. Let's remember what was going on in history at this time. The nation of Israel, the people of God, they had not heard from God for 400 years. No prophets, no words from the Lord, nothing. And then there was the Roman Empire that ruled the nation of Israel. They placed this figurehead king named Herod who was especially cruel to keep the people in line. And they were terribly mistreated. So all these promises that they knew, they remembered from the Old Testament, were starting to sound broken. God had promised a, a salvation and a new kingdom and a new king, and he was going to destroy their enemies, and they were going to have all this blessing and peace and joy, and yet they had seen none of that. All those things seemed farther away than ever. So they had all this longing, this desperation, this hopelessness, and here comes Zechariah claiming to the people that everything they'd been waiting for all this time, here it is, guys. God has not forgotten about you. He's visiting. He's redeeming his people right now. And just like Mary, Zechariah uses all this Old Testament language that would have been so meaningful to the people of God. But for us, it falls deaf on our modern ears. 
This, again, is why it's so important that we read and study the Old Testament. Look, I know the New Testament is easier to read a lot of times. There's a lot of difficult stuff in the Old. But we cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old. It's built on it. So we need to know the Old Testament so that when we read that Zechariah said that God has raised up a horn of salvation, we don't go, what? Huh? A horn? What is he talking about? A car horn? A trumpet? What is that? He's actually talking about an animal horn. It's the horn of a wild ox. I don't know if you've ever seen a wild ox. Anybody seen a wild ox? (laughs) I don't know if those run around in the wild around here. But they have these massive horns they use to impale their enemies. And in the ancient times, the horn of a wild ox was used as a symbol of the strength and power of something. And the Old Testament used that symbol to describe God. Look at Psalm 18, verse 2 says this. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Zechariah's picking up on that. He's using that imagery to describe God's salvation, and he continues using this language. He talks about God delivering people from their enemies and the people who hate them. So Zechariah's picking up on all these Old Testament ideas of God saving his people with power and might and taking out the bad guys. And he's telling the people that all these things they believed and all these things they'd hoped in are happening right now in their day. But I have to imagine that a lot of the people said, really? Really? Let's don't get ahead of ourselves, Zechariah. I get that this baby thing is pretty cool. It's a big deal for you. It seems like God probably did a miracle. But I'm not seeing this radical salvation you're talking about. This is a baby, okay? You see, the Jewish people at this point, they they viewed salvation as being primarily physical. They, They thought of the Messiah as being a literal king, a literal warrior, someone who was going to come and physically fight their enemies. That was the Roman Empire. And he was going to make the kingdom of Israel a powerful nation, and they would rule the world and experience God's peace and blessing. For them, salvation was going to be primarily physical. And this is why we see this confusion throughout the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus. The disciples, they repeatedly asked Jesus, why he isn't knocking heads and building a throne room. The people want to make Jesus their king right then, right there, and take back the power they had. But Jesus doesn't do it. He doesn't seem to be interested in any of that. Rather than washing a crown and sword, Jesus washes feet. Instead of building an army and royal court, Jesus spends his time with children and outcasts. He rejects fame and power and travels around preaching and serving and healing. See, here's what took a long time for people to understand. Jesus did not come to the earth to sit on the throne. He came to die on a cross. He came to save people spiritually from their sins. Because mankind's greatest need is not to be freed from physical oppression or to have wealth or power or to get revenge on their enemies or their political rivals, our greatest need is to be made right with God. We need to be forgiven of our sins. We need a new heart. We need a new relationship with the God who created us and loves us. That's the salvation that the Old Testament, that Zechariah, were, were pointing us to. And we get a glimpse here 
of Zechariah beginning to understand this in the last part of his song. Look at verses 76 through 80. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Here Zechariah pivots in his song, and he begins talking about his son John. He says that he's going to be a prophet of God, and his job is to go before the Lord to prepare the people. And here's the key. His job is to give knowledge of salvation to people in the forgiveness of their sins. That was John's message. That was ultimately Jesus' message. They, they said, repent, believe, and you'll be saved. Your, your sins will be forgiven, and you'll be made right with God. And Zechariah builds on this. He closes his song with this beautiful image of a sunrise. The people are pictured as being covered in darkness and living in the shadow of death. And yet he says, a light is dawning, and everything's about to change. We see this image of light and darkness all throughout the Bible. Darkness representing evil and sin and the curse of humanity. It's, it's said that before Christ, you and I, we live, we walk in darkness. People apart from God in the Bible are described as being blind, unable to see the truth. And this is one of the points Zechariah is making. People are blind. People don't understand who God is and what he's going to do. And this is not a physical problem. This is a spiritual blindness. People cannot see. They cannot even see their own dire situation and need to be saved. They're stuck. They're trapped. They're engulfed in the darkness. And it's at that point, that exact point where the darkness reaches its very peak, that God sends a light, a small flame that would set the world on fire. That's what Christmas is all about. We behold the unforeseen. We're witnessing something that the world had never seen before. They couldn't even dream of this. We've seen the light of Jesus. God, come here. So with that theme in mind, beholding the unforeseen, I want to give you as we close two things we can behold in light of today's passage. Here's the first. Number one, we can behold the unforeseen preparation for redemption. One of the things we love at Christmas time is nostalgia and tradition. Your family probably has some traditions they've carried out for many years, maybe particular foods or dishes that you make or places you go or movies you watch, things you do. My family, we, we grew up with some traditions every year. We would go in December to Opryland Hotel in Nashville. Have any of you guys ever been there and looked at all the lights? Yeah, it's nice. Christmas Eve, my parents would always give us and then force us to wear matching pajamas. Yeah. I won't bring those pictures out for you. Then on Christmas morning, we would line up in the hallway. They'd make a big deal about it. We had to line up youngest to oldest, me and my four sisters. And we would walk in like kind of a parade into our living room. My dad was there with the big camera. You remember the big home video cameras? Now he's got the iPhone. He's just doing that. But, man, those are great memories. And now that we have our own family, my wife Amber and I, we, we've tried to create our own traditions. We, we, we love to watch The Grinch. That's our, <laughs> that's our favorite Christmas movie. We make gingerbread houses or at least attempt to, little ones. We drink a lot of hot chocolate. Amber buys us all fun Christmas sweaters, so be looking out for that. 
And on Christmas Day, we eat a big fancy brunch. That's our traditions. And we love these, these traditions. We love to look back at all these Christmas memories we have together. But you know, for us as followers of Jesus, we look back even further than just our childhoods or lifetimes. We look back ultimately to the birth of Jesus 2,000 years ago. So growing up, I also remember going to church on Christmas, Christmas Eve. I remember reading the Christmas story from the Bible with my family and my parents telling us about Jesus. And that's something we do with our kids today. We want them to know why we really celebrate Christmas, that it's about Jesus. So we talk about him and what happened in Bethlehem all those years ago. But this passage in Zechariah's song shows us that the Christmas story goes back even further than that. God's been preparing the salvation through his son for a long, long time. We can go back to the prophets as they foretold of this child who would be born of a virgin. We can go back further to David where he was promised to have a descendant who would rule on his throne forever. We can go back further to Moses where he prophesied that another prophet would come after him and would lead his people to the promised land. We can go back further to Abraham where a ram was provided as a substitute for his son and he learned that God provides. We can go back further to Genesis when God promised that the seed of Eve would crush and defeat the seed of Satan. And guess what? We can go back even further than that. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.4 that God has been preparing to send his son to the world before the foundation of the world was even laid. From before time began, God has been preparing this plan to redeem and save his people. So Jesus being born in the manger, that was not plan B. That was not blind fate or coincidence or luck. This story from start to finish is guided by the sovereign hand of a God who's in control. And here's what this means. If God has been preparing this long and this much for the redemption of his people, do you think he's going to give up now? If God planned to save us and make us like Jesus from eternity past, and he's guided it all throughout the history of the world, through all times and all ages and all events, do you think he's going to walk away from you now? Just like we read about in the first century, so much of God's plan is unforeseen. We can't see it. These people, they had the Old Testament. They knew God was going to come and do something, but they could not fathom a baby in a manger. There's parts of God's plan we can't fathom either. I mean, praise God, we have his word, we have the Holy Spirit inside us, but we're not God. Most of the time, things don't make sense. His ways are not our ways. But just like Zechariah and Elizabeth, we're called to trust God's preparation for redemption. Do you think it was easy for them? People thought they were crazy. Zechariah's running around deaf and mute for nine months. Elizabeth's carrying this baby and delivering him in her old age. It was not easy. And things aren't easy for us today. We look around the world, we get all bent out of shape. And I know for many of you guys, the holiday season is bittersweet. Just as there are good memories, there are bad ones too. Broken families, missing loved ones, loneliness, homesickness. I know all that pain hits different this time of year. But I want you to know, God's not finished yet. He's working. He's preparing our redemption, and his greatest act is still to come. Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to make all things right. Every sorrow will be turned to joy. Every pain will be turned to glory. We'll be fully and finally restored to a perfect relationship with Jesus and live with him forever.
that's the key to Advent. That's what it's about. That word Advent, I've told you many times, it means coming. And we think typically about Christ's first coming, but it's also about his second. We don't just look back. We look forward. We trust. We wait. We long. Just like those in the first century, we know God's not finished yet. Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He said, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day it will all make sense when we see Jesus face to face. And until then, like Zechariah, like Elizabeth, we have to trust in what God has given us. And we behold the unforeseen preparation for redemption. That's number one. Here's the second and last thing we can behold. Number two, we behold the unforeseen scope of redemption. Just as God's redemption was better than people expected, it was also bigger than people expected. The nation of Israel, they saw salvation primarily through the lens of their own group of people. God was going to save Israel because they were his people. So when Jesus went to Samaritans and to tax collectors, and he called them to follow him. When he rebuked the Pharisees and healed on the Sabbath, when he told his followers to make disciples of all nations, people were surprised. We see throughout Acts as the Gentiles turn to Christ and the Jews reject and people are confused. There's the struggle because they viewed all of God's promises through the lens of Israel and their people. And they forgot that God had always promised Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. They did not foresee just how big God's plan of salvation was. And that begins to shift here in the Gospels and in Zechariah's song. Look again at verses 78 and 79. Hang with me. Look. He says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This imagery, man, I love this imagery of the sunrise. Because the sun does not just rise on a few, but it rises on all who sit in darkness. Jesus called himself the light of the world, the whole world, his heart. His plan was to die for all people so that all people might hear the hope of the gospel. And the sunrise doesn't just shine on the best and the holiness and the special people, but it actually shines brightest on the places that are darkest. God's plan of redemption was not to save the important people, the religious people, the people who had it all together. No, Jesus said in Mark 2.17, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the message of Christmas. Jesus came for sinners. And it was completely unforeseen that a holy God would come to save a wretched sinner like me. That the light of the world would step into darkness and die for a world that wanted nothing to do with him. And that means for us today, where we see darkness, God sees an opportunity. The darker the night, the better the chance for us to shine in the midst of it. Behold the unforeseen scope of redemption. God is doing something much bigger than you even know. So the question for us this Advent season is, will we be a part of that redemption? The story's not over. We're in it. We are in the story now. We have an opportunity to be a part and to share the hope of Jesus with people. So let me challenge you today. 
Is there a way this Christmas season that you can be like John the Baptist and prepare the way for Jesus to change someone's life? Is there a way for you to be like Zechariah and to praise God for what he's done and is now doing in the midst of difficulty? Is there a way you can take the light of Christ and bring it into a dark situation where things look impossible? Let's don't miss an opportunity to help people see and behold the unforeseen. The sun is rising. God is redeeming his people. He's doing so much more than we know. The question is, will you be a part of it? Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.